This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. The Climate Farmers community is the place to be if you're working towards regenerating your farmland and business and want to learn from other farmers who are on a similar journey. Now, Europe is a very diverse continent with significant differences in biomes, landscapes, climates, cultures, languages, and contexts. So rather than looking further abroad for solutions, connect with others who found solutions to the challenges that are unique to us here. We have a central community chat on WhatsApp where you can ask questions, share your own observations, and simply chat with others who don't think you're crazy. We also organize regular skill exchange calls where experienced farmers share their knowledge and answer listener questions. Increasingly, we're even bringing the community offline by organizing gatherings at farms all around Europe. So if you're actively farming anywhere in Europe, you can join for free today through the website at climatefarmers.org under the For Farmers tab and click on Join the Community. And there's also a direct link through the show notes for this episode. I look forward to seeing you there. Hey everybody, and welcome back to this final episode in mine and Nick's three-part series on drought. In the first episode, we talked about how drought was affecting our two homes at the moment. His home is on the island of Tenerife, my own in the northeastern part of Spain. And then we went over the definition of drought and some common myths and misconceptions, as well as the major factors that can make drought more common and severe. In the second episode, we turned to look at the myriad of options that are available to mitigate and even reverse the effects of drought, focusing first on the sequence of design considerations. We looked into stopping points of drainage and damage, minimizing the need for use, and then capture and retention. From there, we took a specific look at small-scale to medium-scale living space, apartments and condos all the way up to small homes and homesteads of a few acres. Now, in this last episode, we're going to wrap up the layout of different drought mitigation strategies for medium, large, and even regional scales. More than home infrastructure, this session focuses on land management with interventions like earthworks, road and access design, and even restoration of water bodies like rivers and streams. The regional scale is an aspect of drought mitigation that I believe everyone has a responsibility to get involved in, and there is a need for a variety of approaches from political action and institutional reform to coalition building and even direct work on the ground. Now, hopefully by the end of this series, you'll feel much better informed about what drought really is and some of the many options available to you to create resiliency against this increasingly common and severe occurrence in many parts of the world in order to take action and change the trajectory that your home and your community is currently on. Now, though we'll repeat this call to action again by the end of the talk, I really encourage you to come and join us on the Regenerative Skills Discord community to participate with more than 350 members to talk about these strategies and get inspired by others who are working on them too. We've also got a community call where you can speak with me live with others and ask questions and explore your own projects. Now, the only way to get the link to the call is to join the Discord server through the website or our Instagram bio, so don't wait. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's get back to the conversation from last week with me and Nick. And, you know, all of this stuff is relevant at the larger scale. So let's take a jump up now to medium scale. Let's talk about maybe things that are around one acre, maybe half a hectare to one hectare, that kind of a scale. And at this point, we really open up options for what we can do on the landscape in creating what is often referred to as a water retention landscape. Where do you often start, Nick, when, when looking at these as a design challenge? Yeah, um, it's, it's quite interesting. At, at that area with the retention landscapes, one of the first things is also looking at how does rain fall in that area? So is there a dry season? Um, because you can store a lot of water in the soil, but specifically if you grow crops or maybe you have a market garden or you're going into any kind of productive operation, you will need to irrigate um, very likely during the dry season. So it makes sense to also have enough water available. Um, so this is something that I'm, I'm working with um, with a few farmers and landowners. So I'm helping them design water catchment systems for their roof areas. And there we talked about the IBC tanks first to, to capture a little bit of water. But on that scale, um, we are actually capturing in larger tanks. So you can get flexible water tanks. Those are what I'm installing here at the property. So one with um, around 50,000 liters. But that's also something I'm helping them 
designed for their systems so that you build a buffer into your property. At the moment, they have water from wells. Um, some of them get it also shipped through the line. But you never know when water restrictions come and you need to shut down your farming operation. That's going to be a bit of an issue. But if you have water security, if you can have the water from your roof, if you have that in the ground, you can be safe and sleep well at night. Um, so that's something I'm working with there with clients. Also something we, we will likely work together with uh, in the coming months. But also then when you have it stored in larger tanks, um, the next step is really looking at the larger landscape. And there, one approach that just makes a lot of sense and is, it's really great, uh, it's called the keyline approach. Uh, maybe you want to explain a bit about like what, what keyline means, where, where does it come from? Yeah, for sure. So keyline goes back to P.A. Yeomans that I mentioned the scale of permanence. And this is one of his brilliant ways of using the topography of a landscape to route water and store it in key areas where it can be used, where it's likely to accumulate, or even to spread it out to areas that tend to be dry. It's easier to illustrate this if you've got some visuals, if you're looking at a topoca, uh, topographic map or you know, even as a, an example on, on, on a fist. So if you hold your knuckles up to the sky, you can see the, the top knuckles on your hand forming a, a ridge, a bunch of bumps like peaks of a hill or a mountain. And in between those, where the space is in between your fingers, is like an analog for the valleys. That's where water is naturally going to converge as it basically uh, uh, drains off of the ridges because water will always move perpendicular to the lines of contour. Lines of contour, if anybody doesn't know, that's like if you were to cut a string perfectly horizontal through a landscape, you will see those wiggly lines that reflect the shape of that space. They're usually done at very specific intervals of like one, five, 10 meters or so. Uh, if you don't have experience, they're kind of hard to, to see or, or grasp a picture of if you're not used to looking at them. I've just done this enough times. So anyway, so that space in between your fingers is where the valleys would be. This is often where small springs and creeks and then forming into rivers first get started on the higher parts of a landscape. And then the top part of your finger would be a ridge. The ridge is the bulge in the landscape that sheds water off of it, unless it has a way of infiltrating into the ground. And what Keyline does is it uses that topography and the options of cutting into the contour lines of that topography in order to slow down water, sink it into the ground, and also route it strategically to places where you can use it. Knowing that water will naturally congregate into the valleys, you can intervene there and shoot it out to one of the ridges to better hydrate one of the ridges that would likely be a lot drier. Conversely, you can also bring water even more directly into valleys and create a, a water body. And through this system of terraces and sometimes swales, you can very slowly and gradually route water between points of, of it being held on the surface in a way that also infiltrates it into the landscape as it's being transferred to different places. One of the other ways that people have used this methodology of design is with subsoiling or a yeoman's plow, which is developed by the same guy. And what it does is it puts large shanks into the ground and usually you're following a topographical pattern that breaks up compaction and allows water to infiltrate into the soil along the patterns of, of topography like we were talking about for above ground features just doing the same thing below. All of this with the ultimate goal of making sure that as little as possible water ever leaves your site without being used, without being uh, infiltrated into the ground. And there's even then the possibility of pumping water from points of where it's being held like uh, check dams or ponds back up higher into the system and getting it to cycle through all over again. And in some cases, this creates points where there is higher hydration than others. And in others, the objective is to distribute an even and more uniform hydration across a broader landscape. All of this, like there's tons of options of how to work within it. It depends on your context and what it is you're trying to achieve with the rainfall. But it's quite a sophisticated system that is at the same time quite simple and elegant. And it's, it, there's, a, there's a lot of different opportunities to play with the options available and the features that you can make 
with different levels of machinery. You can play with this on a small scale and try it out, let's say in a yard. You're probably not gonna have all of the topographical features that allow you to, to collect much water, but it's also safe to fail. Like you're not building large dams or ponds that could overfill. And if you don't get the spillway right, could become a disaster. So it's it's actually a really fun way to to play around with this system in a way that helps you on your learning curve, gets you to understand the dynamics and the physics of it, and then you can go up larger and start to play with larger e ecosystems and landscapes. So a couple of the features that I mentioned there are terraces and swales. Nick, can you tell me about why or why not you might want to pick one of these features and the differences between them? Uh, yes, it's two terms that are that are often used. I mean, especially in the in the permaculture world, like everyone just puts swales everywhere. Um, and so basically, it's it's a swale is generally a, a ditch on contour with a berm on the lower side. So uh, you can imagine when you when you have a, a hill or like any any kind of elevation change. So you basically dig a little pit on one side. And the soil that you dig out, you add it on the below side. So it builds a little berm. So it's like a small little hill on that side. Um, and they are perfectly on contour. So you can imagine them like a very long, shallow pool, so to say. Um, the lower side is not compacted. And um, soils are generally used as tree growing systems. So then you would plant trees um, on the berm, but also on, on the higher side. Um, quite often they are also used as access roads so that basically you use it on the one side to grow things but also to access things um, but they do come with a few downsides so especially when you want to plan them for access as well when it rains uh, that's also quite often a time where we want to be around on the property when we want to get around but then the swale is full of water um, which makes it difficult to walk through and basically impossible to drive through depending on the on the scale so that can be of an issue and when your swales have certain lengths um, there will never be 100% perfectly level um, so even when you're working with laser level and the most sophisticated technologies over a certain length there will be some parts where it's just a few centimeters below than others so there you have a lot of then water building up so it turns more into a bit of a swampland and uh, a big mosquito habitat so that that can become a bit of an issue and then over time they just degrade um, become super wobbly to uh, to access so yeah swales i used to be a really big fan of them now looking at them i think they have quite a few downsides as well um, whereas in terracing you wouldn't work so much with digging a digging a trench and then building up the berm but it's more that you're cutting a little bit out of the mountainside filling that up to build kind of a level terrace um, I think the term terrace is much more used than than swale also for for people who are not so much in this space so you can imagine um, yeah just a, a normal terrace you can then slope them either inwards so that they're sloping a little bit back towards the mountain uh, where they could capture water you can also slope them perfectly level a little bit down it depends on on what your landscape allows um, and what is often done with terraces is that they are not just perfectly level but you can slightly lean them in one direction so it can be one percent um, of of leaning into one direction it can also be a little bit less a little bit more depends on the on the soil and what you want to achieve but these terraces can be fantastic also to direct water through the landscape so if you want to get it into a pond into a dam Maybe you want to get it from a very wet area um, to a drier area. Maybe you have a house that that you're fearing that might end up with too much water. Then by terracing above it, you can get the water away from it. So there's, there's different ways. Um, but with all of these, I think the danger is just hearing about them, maybe watching a few YouTube videos and then putting them in. Um, that can cause quite a few problems further down. Um, so it is advised there to to really work with people who've who've done it before who, who know what they're doing. Um, because yeah, I mean we've we've both worked with a lot of clients and seen a lot of properties where just randomly they were put in, and then later on there these gigantic features of the landscape that just cause more problems than good. So it's better to really plan them out and then um, yeah, work with them in a in a more appropriate way. 
Yeah, and maybe we'll go into the deeper engineering and the considerations for building these features on another episode, but we can give an overview right now about some of the considerations, especially when designing a water body, like dams or ponds. And when in conjunction with something like terraces or swales that are quite likely going to significantly increase the catchment area that you are routing water then to this, you need to make sure that you properly size the safety features for this and calculate the size of the feature itself for the potential amount of rainwater that it could receive in a 100-year or 500-year rain event, which, quite frankly, are becoming a lot more common than those timescales would allude to. And so you can do that by looking at the entire area that the catchment would include. You can map that out through topography maps. It doesn't need to be extremely precise, like down to the square meter or to the square yard, but getting it, you know, at least fairly well mapped out between which ridges are collecting from at what points it's actually being directed into this water body. And then knowing what is called the runoff coefficient of the soil or the surface that you are capturing that water from. So if it's going into, let's say a parking lot, <laughs> then you're dealing with like 90 to a hundred percent, or I guess it would be a 0 0.95 or, or one runoff coefficient, right? That's how that one's measured. And this way you can do the multiplication. And the opposite would be if it was running over very fertile or sandy soil, which oftentimes has a runoff coefficient of somewhere closer to 0.3.4. And basically what that is calculating is how much of that water is infiltrated into the ground instead of running off over the surface, which would then put it into the catchment and put it into the feature that you've created. And so what you do is you calculate that area, you multiply it by the coefficient and also the largest amount of rain that would fall in a period of time. So let's say in the last 500 years, I mean, this is quite unlikely that you've actually been able to get this data, but the largest rainfall on record that you have as reference Let's say it's, I don't know, Florida just got like 26 inches of rain over three days recently. So <laughs> let's use that as an extreme example. The idea is not that your water body needs to be capable of taking all of that water all at once, but that the spillway for where water can run off of when it over, well, when it reaches capacity needs to be large enough for that potential water flow to safely breach over that low point and make its way into the landscape in a way that does not cause erosion and does not cause any kind of backup that could otherwise overfill the feature in another area and cause a blowout. That's the basics of it. And we can go again, like I said, into more detail about this stuff if we have a case study in the future. But as far as safety considerations, spillways are your best bet. You should be considering these not only for water bodies like dams and ponds, but also for swales and terraces if they are designed to hold water at any point or if they're perfectly on, or meant to be perfectly on contour at some area. Wherever the high level is meant to be so that it can safely drain over without breaching the top of, let's say, a berm or a high point in the landscape, uh, again, without creating erosion. So oftentimes you'll armor these spillways with boulders. If you don't have access to rocks, then uh, you can put in stakes, you can put in brush, but you can also try and compact it. The best thing is to plant these out as well so that vegetation can get somewhat established and fill in the gaps in between because that will also reduce the chances of erosion. What else as far as any main safety concerns? that people should have in mind before we get into the actual calculations next? You, can, can you think of anything? Um, yeah, I think one of the big things to consider is always like what is below the feature that you're putting in. Um, mm. So yeah. if, if you have any kind of, if you're holding any kind of water and below it is your house um, or any kind of structure or I don't know, maybe your, your chicken coop or, or whatever, um, you really want to double check your your safety and your overflow sizing. Like you should always do proper calculations for, for spillway sizing as you just did, but be specifically cautious when there's anything of value uh, below. 
because that can really cause a lot of problems. And it's also something, yeah, seen a lot. You know, people just rent a little digger, rent an excavator, have no idea what they're doing, just put in a little dam, suddenly it holds um, huge amounts of water. You have a giant rainstorm, suddenly there's much more water than they expected. Spillway is not sized correctly, and then you can have a catastrophic failure. And that can also then get even worse. So if you have multiple water bodies, maybe one breaks, then you have this giant flood rushing into the second, causing damage there. So really do it right and work with uh, someone who knows what they're doing. Uh, that's really the main thing. And yeah, try, try it small. Like we we talked about how you can plant your trees in these small mulch basins and your gray water basins. Like play around on that scale and then see, okay, does it work? Does your does your thinking actually do what uh, what happens then also in reality? And also think there um, with the kind of soil you have, like different types of soil behave very differently. You have different clay types. Um, some will hold very well. Some others will turn into this slushy, yeah, weird consistency. And then suddenly the whole wall just collapses. So yeah, be be very cautious and, and don't just put something in because you saw it in a YouTube video. Yeah, that point is especially important if you have expansive clays. It can be hard to know if you have that in your subsoil without doing a test, but you should talk to somebody around. The people who are most likely to know would be uh, contractors or people who put in foundations for homes or people who dig wells that can give you somewhat of a geology uh, section report. And I know famously there's some areas of Colorado that have very expansive clays that have been very difficult for people's foundations of homes and, and, and water bodies. It's not super common, but basically what an expansive clay is, uh, is that it, well, it expands when it holds water, it can, it can grow in size and then it can shrink significantly when it dries out. And this can be, you know, really difficult for that amount of movement when you're trying to put in features like this. And yeah, you know, it can reach a saturation point as well where it loses its stability and that's where you can get failures. But again, it's not super common, but it is worth looking into if you're going to lead a project like this. Uh, I, yeah, so like I have examples like the, the, the landscape project that I just did for those clients that I was mentioning where I was doing the overview design and they put in the Siras and they've got a natural pool that they're going to put in with another contractor. I have been doing the earthworks planning for their landscape and it's two hectares, but they have all kinds of buildings and little features all over the landscape. So this is a Tetris puzzle of where can we safely route water to so that there's nothing major or important below a water retention feature that if the worst case scenario happened uh, and it blew out, it wouldn't you know, be above something of major risk. And at the same time, I really favored off-contour features because it is a, it's a tourism site. They have people renting out the house often. And what can happen, too, is if you leave things on contour or if you keep them above ground in areas where you're not really paying attention, is they can go really stagnant. And they can start to breed mosquitoes and just be kind of gross, especially if you don't maintain the vegetation in them, um, you know. It takes a while sometimes for these to get integrated into the ecology for the proper wildlife to move in that can help to maintain a homeostasis and a level of health in that water that you would want to have around on your landscape, especially if it's close to a home or residence. And so I have been favoring like infiltration basins and off-contour terraces to prevent any of this pooling stagnant water that can make it really uncomfortable in the summertime. Um, so yeah, that's just an example from my own recent experience. Let's see. All right, so we've been talking about this as if it was really just for medium scale landscapes, but all of this gets scaled up when we're talking about large farms and you know big properties. Anything, in my opinion, like 20 acres and above. So it was like 10 hectares or so. No, that'd be less. That's like five hectares. Um, so where are some of the differences when we're looking at this large scale? What are the opportunities that open up here beyond what you could do on a medium scale property? And what do the earthworks that we just talked about maybe look like at this larger scale? Yeah, I think one of the 
main opportunities that we get on on larger areas is that we can really work with with different valleys quite likely so it might be um, that on a property you have one valley that collects a, a ton of water because it's a very very big one with a very big water catchment area whereas you might have another valley with a much smaller one that is much drier um, where you don't have that opportunity and then we can actually play around with the landscape and direct water from one one valley to the next uh, and you can really direct water over over very long distances um, and the important part here is really planning it well um, earlier we we talked about the scale of permanence and so there is where you can really see how water and access play together so when you have a landscape like that it, like you really want to plan it um, and from the from the bigger view because your roads are one of the best features to harvest water and to get water from a to b um, because what will happen on the long run very likely if, you, if you're doing a good job with vegetation that's growing and you're regenerating the landscape quite likely the whole property will be such a sponge that all water will get infiltrated even in heavy rain events and when that happens your roads are the only catchment areas that remain uh, and so quite often what happens in projects is that the sizing for dams and also the sizing to keep dams full is done by looking at the whole area, um, specifically when it's when it's degraded, when it's capped, so when it's um, yeah, when it's really hard surfaces. Um, and then when it rains, all of that water will end up in the dams. So that's what they're sized for, um, which is which is good on the one side. But also there's quite a few projects where now the dams are almost uh, completely empty or even failing um, because there's just not enough water anymore. Like the landscape around them um, can take on that water. And then when you have your dams that are completely empty and not really functioning well for the ecosystem anymore, that's really something to, to look out for. So use your roads as water catchment uh, and use them to, to direct water around. Um, what I really like, it works on large scale, but also on smaller ones where you can kind of zigzag water through the landscape so always go from the point of okay what's the highest point of the property and how can we keep water on the property as long as possible before it leaves so you can have these kind of zigzagging roads um, that work as water catchment so kind of like a terrace road mix and uh, then you can have a few infiltration basins in there you can put larger dams and you can connect all of these so when one overflows it then overflows onto a road go somewhere else and you can really zigzag all through the landscape. And that's something, yeah, that's, that's really beautiful where you can really affect a whole watershed. Um, and yeah, that, that's something I'm um, really passionate about in the design process. So it's, it's one of the farms where, where we were together um, that we're working with 700 hectares in Portugal. And you can just see, you know, some parts have these gigantic erosion gullies because there's so much water coming. Other areas are completely dry. So that's going to be really interesting over the coming years, working with that and then getting water from, from one dam side to another, making sure you have enough sediment traps in there. Like on these large scales, you really get a amazing uh, water playground and amazing potential for regeneration. Yeah. And like so many other aspects of working with ecology, it's the relationship and the interconnectedness of multiple systems that you start to see things really flourish, right? You can have all of these features on a landscape in isolation and they will not perform the same way as when they are multiple redundancy integrated, right? So that any point of failure still has backups so that you don't have complete breakdowns of a system unless something absolutely catastrophic happens, right? And this is exactly how resilient natural systems develop themselves as well. There are many... I guess, elements or points that create niches, but that also serve similar functions as others, right? So water comes in and is held in multiple places. There are many different species that interact with those and help to cycle nutrients, to increase their health, to bring those nutrients and that water availability to other parts. Um, and all of these interactions kind of govern the behavior, but also the capacity for life within an area of land that you're working with. 
Um, and so I guess that takes us to regional development. So it's very unlikely that anybody listening to this has access to more than a large farm. Uh, if you do, please call me. I would love to work with you. <laughs> and that would be really fun to see what we could do on like a whole regional size landscape. But what's more likely is that regions were looking at, you know, municipalities. We're starting to work with government bodies and possibly even international organizations. So there is an increasing call to rehydrate entire regions. Uh, I was actually last year in November in a course dedicated to this idea with Zach Weiss in Tuscany in Italy, looking at the major challenges that that region has faced, what the capacity it has based on information from the past, as well as the resources that are currently available, could be leveraged in order to take it into a brighter future of a, of a better relationship with the water cycle within, within its borders and the different stakeholders and members that would need to be brought in to have conversations and look at this as a longer term solution in which many people are invested, as well as the industries and the livelihoods that are supported by them. It's a complex process and it's something that takes, it, like it's never gonna be accomplished by one person, right? It's always going to be a collaborative effort. And I think it really requires people to remove their egos or their need to be the heroes who save the watershed of an area, right? Um, and be willing to make compromises and to make gradual and reliable changes that eventually gets you towards uh, a co-created vision of what is possible for a space. And at this point, we're talking about more than just putting in water bodies. We're talking about changing the relationship that a population and quite likely a culture has with the entire ecology of the area that they that they inhabit. How do you think about this, Nick? Have you come across opportunities to work at this scale or to participate in conversations that, that look at landscapes this way? Yeah, I think... Um... The, the main thing here to look at is, is one important word you mentioned it earlier. It's decentralization. Mm. Um, and also that changes the whole discussion. Because if we would look at a regional landscape and we just want to put in, for example, one gigantic dam for the whole area, well, on the one side, that would be horrible for the ecology um, and, and, and many other factors. Uh, it would also make coordination and all of this way more difficult. Um, I, why I'm such a big fan of these decentralized systems because every watershed, so a water catchment area, um, you can divide it any region into into different plots, into small various plots, and if all of them have their own decentralized water catchment, and then you might connect maybe one to the next. But if you do this in all these spaces, then that has an effect on the larger ecology, on the larger area, and I think that is also where the big opportunity. So that we don't just look at it as one giant area where we do a gigantic intervention, but it's more that we divide it into small areas that all have these decentralized parts. And then when it rains, blood risk is reduced tremendously. We have all these different infiltration basins. So that also then completely reduces the risk um, of, of droughts and, and what that might lead to. So I think this is one important part um, where... I think Neil Speckman was in the project he's working with where he says his designs are always working in fractals so that basically they look the same on, on any scale. So they can work on a small scale. If you zoom out, the general pattern stays the same uh, and then you can build them as big as you want because the, the general pattern stays the same. And I think that's the, the beauty of these landscapes when you, when you look at it, when you work on that scale. Um, and so I've been in a few discussions with with larger landowners um, who have who have a lot of land, but also with with others who are thinking about larger reforestation areas. So there were in discussions where basically some of the companies working uh, with reforestation they're realizing okay, just putting in seeds might not be enough. Looking looking forward, so it might actually make more sense to say okay, what can we do to the landscape? Like how can we maybe slightly reshape that? Um, specifically in forested areas, you need roads and kind of things. How can we design them in a way that they're already benefiting 
the water of the place. And then in the scale of permanence after water, like uh, we, we get to the ecosystem layer. And so there were in discussions for, for different projects um, in, in different countries. So that's going to be really interesting. And that's also, as you mentioned, like once connections come in of different systems, um, that's when you can really see these systems flourishing. Um, yeah, so so I'm, I'm in different discussions there. Let's see which kind of projects really turn um, into work there. But it's it's amazing to see like, hey, what can we do in a garden slightly bigger on a farm, but then it also works on a landscape because we replicate instead of scaling. Um, and I think that's also one of the great things. I think I've heard it the first time um, in the US. Was it on uh, white oak pastures? I think Will Harris said it, that we don't need to scale regenerative agriculture. We need to replicate it. And I really like that approach. Like systems don't necessarily need to become bigger and and more, I don't know, enormous, but we just need to replicate them. And we need lots of small versions and taken together, they can have a big effect. And that's the kind of approach that I really like. And I think that's a very worthwhile route to go. I completely agree. And it leaves room for everybody's input and the idiosyncrasies of you know, personal visions, cultural differences, differences of ecology and landscape and climate to put their own spin, their own take on things and find what works for them in a unique way, rather than trying to copy and replicate somebody else's model just because it worked for them. I think that's often where we see these things sort of lose steam or get told that they don't work. It's like, yeah, well, you can't just cut and paste these from one place to another. And yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to the the broad conversations that need to happen on regional scales of involving everybody in the decision, because there's no way that working with water at a regional scale doesn't affect everybody that lives there. And it can be hard. It, it's a it's a long term process. It's not easy to create the awareness and the engagement required to bring in all of the voices and all of the interests that are necessary to have an inclusive approach to these types of solutions. But I also know that there's no long-term or lasting change without them. I mean, you can force through a project, God knows <laughs> just about everywhere in the world has attempted that. But that's often where we see these big problems happening. There's displaced people, there's issues over land rights, there's uh, all kinds of considerations and priorities that are not respected in the process. And, you know, let's try to do better since we know and have real examples of where this has worked. And we can point to Rahendra Singh's work in, in Rajasthan in India. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple others. Uh, Wangari Matai in, in Kenya. A lot of these are featured on the Water Stories platform in the community there. They've done a great job of making mini films that give inspiring examples of, of case studies that have been extremely successful all over different parts of the world. And well, so let's talk about water bodies as well. It's like the one glaring part of a hydrological system that we've jumped over up until now, but it's something that I'm increasingly interested in. Do you wanna take the lead on talking about lakes and streams and rivers or? Um, yeah, I think, quite often we see um, rivers in a way that is is far from their original state or from what they could look like. So quite often we try to make them nice and straight, maybe even add concrete on the sides to make sure that none of that water can infiltrate and that um, we take it as far as we can from the natural ecology. Um, and, and that's something where we need to really look back. Uh, you know, if rivers generally have their floodplains next to them and they're there for a reason uh, and they make sense to to keep as floodplains but we just decide like yeah no let's just completely put concrete into all of these let's make straight rivers out of concrete put houses right next to them uh, and then when we get heavy rain events everyone wonders why we have flooding and why there's problems um, and so i think there we really need to look back and and look at what does the landscape naturally do like how does it behave what happens what are the kind of patterns that we see there um, and how can we create them or recreate them um, so we need to bring the the floodplains back 
also many of the lakes uh, we're just draining them we're just using them for electricity production with giant dams but it completely messes up how they could function from an ecological standpoint and um, yeah I think it's it's one area where we just keep trying to fight nature and, and natural patterns where if we would just try to pay a bit more attention into how would natural flows look and how would this develop in a in a intact ecosystem we would have so much more success and we wouldn't have these gigantic damages that always happen um, as soon as we have a little bit more rain um, but yeah i mean your house is right next to a big river so how, how are you tackling that i'm looking at it right now it's across me from the balcony i really like to look at especially rivers as living things right they maybe don't have the same biological components as you might attribute to like an animal but they definitely have behavior they go through evolutions and stages i mean they shape the environment around them almost more than any other natural feature because of the erosive potential of water and how much that it can fluctuate given rainfall patterns, different times of the year, snow melt from higher up in the landscape. And this, this river where I am, it's, it's called a Riera here in Catalonia. It's much more like a creek, but you know, it's pretty big. Like you could definitely call it a river. It's a tributary to the biggest river of the area of which the Cuenca, the, 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 what do you call it? The water catchment area is named after, which is the Ter. And that one flows by Girona and out into the Mediterranean and is born in the Pyrenees. However, the source of the Riera Major, which is the one that's right in front of my house right now, starts at the peak of the Montseigne Natural Park, which is closer south towards uh, Barcelona. And so this river runs almost entirely north and deposits just below that uh, reservoir, which I was talking about yesterday, the one with the church in it, uh, which is called the Pantano de Sao. And it's one of the cleanest water bodies in this area of Catalonia, partly because it doesn't flow through any industrialized or major farming areas. It's adjacent to them, but it doesn't go through them. So starting at that peak in the Monsain, which is part of the coastal range, here in Catalonia. It flows north down through the forest, goes through a town called Viladrao, and then to where we are in San Sadorni de Usomort, and goes through a couple of towns then before it, it connects with the Ter. I've been going through a lot of research papers. I've been talking with the people of both the natural parks, the Monsen and Las Guillerías, where I'm a part of here, and some of the management projects that have been happening here. So, the most recent reference that I have to was the year before we found the house, which is 2020. There was a major flooding event from a storm called uh, Gloria that came through. And I have footage from the neighbors who came out and took video of when it was in full rage. Like, so we've, we're in this mountain valley where everything around us is pretty much all granite. And there's a point of convergence just below the waterfall, which is right over to the side of the house there after going through a meadow where the water gets pinched and forced through an area of rock where there's an old historical Roman bridge and then it opens back out again. So this is a point of high pressure and potentially quite a bit of erosion. Luckily, the, the rock hasn't given way, but part of the rock that's keeping it there is the old walls of the house. So I don't want to test that. <laughs> and the, the flood damaged quite a bit of the riparian zone, which was actually damaged even before there because there was a farm that was basically it got rid of all of its trees all the way down to the riparian point and i'm using this as an illustration for like a broader point of how to keep rivers connected to their their floodplains and the importance of riparian zones which are the ecological corridors on either side of a water body usually occupied by a community of shrubs and trees that help to hold the banks in place during flooding events, prevent erosion, while also shading the water, which is uh, particularly important to this area because with the lowering level of the water due to the droughts and more exposed water to the sun because of the damage to the riparian area, the temperature of the water has raised to the point where it actually in, in previous times last summer was too warm for the trout to stay alive. 
trout are delicate and they need cold water because cold water is able to hold more oxygen. And as it raises, it raises past a certain point, which I believe here is 19 degrees Celsius, there is not enough oxygen in the water for the trout to survive. And so we get massive fish die-offs uh, as it heats up. And again, part of that is due to the degraded uh, areas of the riparian zone here. So yeah, with issues of erosion, all of the sediment that's gone down through here, they've removed some previous dams that had been here for a long time with the very good intention of reconnecting fish to their spawning grounds. However, the, the dam that had been here for probably over 2000 years, which used to route water towards the, uh, the mill, which this house is, a, is an old retired mill, which used to mill paper. When that dam was taken away, I mean, it had been there for, like I said, probably about 2,000 years. So it's not like it was a recent installation. At that point, it was a fixed feature of the landscape. And trees had grown up with that level of water being constant because it was maintained by the dam. And so when that was removed and all of the sediment moved down with it, it lowered significantly the general level of water in the river, which inevitably also lowers the water table. And a lot of the alders, the black alders that live along the corridor here, who are used to having their roots wet, uh, died off. So we have massive tree die off along the riparian corridor and the path going further north or actually south of, of the river right now. So all of these things kind of contribute, right? It's a complex ecosystem. It can be very delicate. Small interventions can really throw off its equilibrium. And it's important to consider the health of all of these interconnected kind of sub ecosystems for the health of the body of water that inevitably the larger ecology is gonna be dependent on. There are some really interesting design considerations and interventions that can be done in rivers. One particularly that I've been researching and may actually be collaborating with the park service here to implement in this area is called induced meandering. And this is a term that was coined by Bill Zedike and Van Clothier who wrote the book, uh, Let the Water Do the Work, about the, the careers that they had of reconnecting incised channels, basically waterways that had been eroded out at their base and disconnected from their, from their floodplains in the American Southwest and Northern Mexico to stop losing their sediment, to slow them down, and through the meandering, basically the weaving and the curvature of uh, healthy water bodies, they start to deposit their sediment, release some of their kinetic energy, and reestablish a healthy relationship with the, with the landscape around them, helping to rehydrate the entire area. So this is something that I may look into doing here. Uh, I can see a lot of potential because of all of the sediment that was dropped recently and the change of the level of the river. And I mean, there, there's a number of other things that you can do, like beaver dam analogs, where you see erosion. To me, this is a little bit more useful to start in ephemeral streams, which are streams that run seasonally and that go dry for a period of time. This way you're working with less quantities of water and often less kinetic energy, which can otherwise be dangerous if you don't have experience here. But what we're trying to emulate is the collection of usually woody debris or trunks and, and other biological matter that Beavers naturally put to create little ecosystems where they live inside of these dams, they reproduce there, and they also create conditions for more fish and aquatic wildlife that can completely can, uh, transform water bodies and their health. It was described to me once that if we were to go back about 500 years into the past, you wouldn't see very many rivers or creeks as you see them today, mostly as channels that kind of meander through the landscape, but rather these like pearl necklace uh, series of small interconnected ponds that disperse around and, and don't look necessarily even like a single channel that runs through them. And this was largely due to the fact that there were interspersed wetlands and bogs and small dams and ponds that were created by the wildlife that helped to manage these systems. And whatever we can do to start to recover these areas of collection, redispersal, and also being able to take the type of charge and hold it that you would get from a major weather event, 
the much more healthy and interconnected to the surrounding ecology our water bodies will be, as well as, you know, just generally healthier because in these areas they're allowed to release their sediment and purify with the connection to the riparian vegetation. You can tell I'm kind of passionate about this. This is something that I just think is like, to me, the most beautiful landscapes are these interconnected water bodies that have lush vegetation, ample wildlife that are in a level of homeostasis that allow for fluctuations from floods and periods of drought, while having kind of periods of flourishing in both of those fluctuations. Uh, and they're so few and far between now because of how manipulated our water bodies are and how channelized and forced and controlled uh, basically all rivers around the world are at this point. There's very few that are still connected and, and healthy the way they used to be. So I'm, I'm very passionate about finding ways to intervene, to conduct projects that are minimal effort, but start to create a new trajectory for a cycle where the wildlife can come in and start to manage these in a, in the, in a healthy way. Yeah, um, it's, it's so funny how, how close um, our main kind of aspirations are to the environments that we live in. Yeah. Like for me here, like just what you described, that is just so far off. I would be happy <laughs> with just having a few less cacti and maybe some green trees throughout the year. I would already be completely happy with just having a green August. Um, <laughs> so yeah, just thinking about something like rivers is is incredible. Um, but I think that that also shows the beauty of working with water because it looks so different in different environments. Yeah. Um, so just thinking about like having flowing rivers here, well, maybe at some point if I really do a good job over the well, next... What you guys have on the islands over there are the Lavada system, right? where you have the ancient canal system that distributes and, and starts to spread out the water that come from the higher mountains across the agricultural land of the island. Maybe you want to talk about those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what we have here. So not not rivers in the traditional sense, but um, what we do have in the in the national park, high up on, on Tato on the volcano, um, so there's a lot of um, canary and pine growing. And what happens is that water... Um, it kind of condenses uh, on the on the pines and then it drops down. So even when it doesn't rain, at least in the morning, you have all the dew building up on them and then it drops into the soil. So there are some aquifers higher up that are that are still somewhat full. Um, yeah, with the huge issues of of tourism that we talked about in the last episode, they are getting depleted because they're pumping way too much out of it. But how was it done originally, um, already hundreds of years ago? It's, it's also really brilliant where they dug a more or less level kind of tunnels into the mountains. So they kept, they kept uh, digging. And how it worked, that basically a community, so one valley, uh, one, one village would say, okay, let's do this. So some people could put in money for people to dig. And so basically they, they bought what are, what are called uh, acciones de agua, so kind of shares in that endeavor so they would put money together for then people to dig in with the hope of finding water and so how it worked is they would dig um, and some of these are around five kilometers long so don't know maybe that's three miles or we need to get better at, at at the conversion but yeah it's it's quite long to dig by hand uh, yeah. into solid rock yeah. um so they 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 were doing that and what happens is that through the through the rock at some point they would hit a porous area where then water would accumulate in these channels and they would then direct it out um, into a first kind of chamber, like a small pool. And then they would build these kind of canals um, that were originally done um, out of kind of a sandstone um, that they had here. Now they're all done with, with concrete and, and pipes. And then it's very similar to what we know from the aqueducts, what uh, most famous from the Egyptians. So with a tiny change in elevation, they use those to then transport water over kilometers um, over the island, and they're still intact today. So one of those also um, goes by close close here. And how it works is that those people who put in money, so they bought these shares in the in the water systems, they would then also get access to this uh, in proportion to what they put in. And so nowadays, well, obviously those people don't live anymore. 
but with different properties, you can buy these water shares. And what that usually means is that you can get water for a certain amount of time. So they have all these valves at different areas. And then if you have access to that, you basically get dedicated a certain time where the valve would be open towards your property. And then what flows in that time uh, you get on your property. And it's really beautiful that that was developed hundreds of years ago. It's super low tech, only gravity. Um, and these systems are still working today. They're still intact. Um, and, and that's fantastic. And, you know, even on a, on a dry area like this, they were able to direct water for kilometers and kilometers. And only now it's getting, yeah, a bit disturbed uh, with the big industry just pumping those empty to build bigger pools and irrigate golf courses. Yeah, I haven't been to Tenerife, as you well know, but I did recently go to the island of Madeira in Portugal, which is, uh, you know, just basically north of you off the coast of Morocco. And this is also what they have. Because one of the things that Alba and I got to do was go and hike these Levada systems. And it was part of the water plan that I did for a client that had me out there to, to kind of read their landscape and give them design opportunities. And I'd never seen this in person before. I'd heard about these ancient irrigation and water distribution networks. I've seen a few of other ones in various states of disrepair in other parts of, of Europe. And man, the history of how people have developed ways without machinery, without fossil fuel energy to distribute and collect water in different places, make it available for irrigation is really, really advanced in a lot of places. Uh, there's some great examples here in Spain. Like I was recently actually last year on the island of Mallorca and they still have in a in a state of disrepair some irrigation canals that were built by the Muslims during their occupation during the uh, Umayyad Caliphate and it's one of the projects in the long term that we're looking to do is get some specialists out there who can help to trace it and see if we can recover the function of that at least partially because it's a zero energy water distribution system and I mean, here around in Catalonia, we have what they call minas, which I believe the translation in English is quanats. Uh, it's kind of an awkward word, and probably people haven't heard of it very much, but there's these underground canals that they've basically built arches above so that they don't collapse, usually with bricks. And they are routed from either springs or wells that kind of overflow higher up in the landscape and then route water down into the plains where they're used for, for irrigation. And they're still maintained to this day. There's actually a farmer in our network, uh, Pau, who's a rancher down near where Carlo and them are in, in the area of the Delta Ebro. And they pay a certain amount. There's still some, uh, some old guys and, and some people who studied under them who are able to go in there. And, you know, usually the issue is that they'll collapse or that some tree roots will grow into them and, and clog them up. But you can still maintain them and, and keep them functional. So... This is an area that I've only really started to explore, and it's different in different parts of the world. But the the knowledge and the understanding of water distribution and harvesting from the ancient world should get more, uh, I think, understanding and and promotion because it could. I wouldn't say necessarily solve a lot of problems because many of them are based on sources and availability of water that we might not have access to anymore. But it's definitely a sophisticated and low-tech solution that we're currently trying to engineer our way out of with pumps and underground uh, you know, lines that disconnect water further from the landscape that they need to rehydrate. But anyway, um, there's, there's so many cool things to continue to explore here. And even though we have gone on for a long time, I know we could touch on a lot of, of other topics and go into more detail. So... I guess for those of you who are listening, if there are aspects of this type of water work, maybe inspired by previous episodes that I've done with interviews or some ideas and concepts that you're playing around with, or even if you just have questions based on some design considerations or aspirations for rehydrating your landscape that you'd like to talk about us with or talk to us about, Feel free to get in touch. Just like we said on the last episodes, one of the best ways to keep these discussions going is on the Discord channel. Uh, you can get the links to join for free now on the website or through our Instagram at regenerativeskills.com. And Nick, how can people find your resources and open a dialogue with you? 
um yeah i'm also i'm also sometimes there on the on the discord but the most direct way um would be through through instagram or linkedin so also they are permanent um as we've talked about the scale of permanence so easy to remember um on instagram uh, but also yeah nick uh, steiner on on linkedin you can also find me there um where i generally focus a bit more on like larger scale and what would need to happen in, in a general thinking way where where the instagram page is a bit more personal and and practical um yeah and i'm i'm quite excited because it's fun working with with different people uh, with different properties so here on the island working with a few people with very dry areas who want to get started and have no water at all so how can you get started there also working with others where erosion is the biggest uh, biggest problem so yeah I'm, I'm always excited especially also the project that we're working on together um and yeah it's it's just fun as you as you can tell we really love nerding out about water and that's not gonna change anytime soon <laughs> And also consider, too, if you want some direct assistance with this. These are services that Nick and I offer. We just recently had another conversation with a really interesting potential project in the or the Texas Panhandle, a very challenging ecology that's been degraded for a long time, but shows real potential for setting a new trajectory and an example for other kinds of land cultivation in the area, where I think a lot of people have generally given up because of the cycles of drought and flood that, that are endemic around there. Like you said, we're also available to do on-site consultations. And a lot of what I do with people initially is going there to look at how water is behaving on the landscape and where the potential is. If that's something that you haven't been trained to do, it's a really fun and interactive thing that you know you come along with us and we can show you some of the indicators, the clues that the landscape can tell you that can give insights into how it is currently functioning and where small and calculated interventions could really change the, the relationship that your landscape has with, with water and rainfall. What are some, and Nick, you also do consultations and designs for rainwater harvesting systems on a residential scale. You did one for our good friends, uh, Carlo and Coralie down in Tarragona. That one was really cool. I got to go and see it after they implemented it. And uh, the garden that's growing out of it is really beautiful. What are some of the other services that you offer now? Yeah, I think um, it, it starts, as you just said, with like small stuff. So if you have a garden and you want some help with okay, how to get started, uh, be it gray water systems, but also larger rainwater catchment systems. So they're working with a few farmers on, okay, how do you, how do you set this up? How do you design it uh, to become secure over the over the dry season so how can you store as much water as possible uh then bigger landscape so how can you as we as we talked about at the beginning how can you prevent erosion or maybe not prevent it but at least slow it down and uh, and get it better how can you infiltrate with different designs of connected water bodies terraces uh, working with key lane systems so yeah it, it really depends on problems um, that you have and i think the great thing that that we have like uh, you and I basically our our networks so there's no problem um, where we wouldn't know someone to call to find a solution if we don't know it immediately and I think that's that's the cool thing like we can work uh, on any project and and know the right people to call to really make it happen and and implement it. Yeah, the other thing that I really love to do on these types of jobs is help people find the scale and the budget of of projects that are right for them. Like I, I have known people who, you know, they really just specialize in earthworks. And so if you've got an earthwork problem, you call them, they'll come out with a budget and bring in the machinery. But I really like having a broad view of the options that are available. And oftentimes I really try and favor the low tech DIY solutions that people can, you know, maybe you're not going to see drastic changes over one season because you're only able to do so much. But this is much more accessible to people. You don't necessarily have to have a lot of calculations, a bunch of experience, a lot of uh, technical skills or know-how, but you can chip away at these things that compound over time. And little by little, for very little money, you can put yourself kind of through a learning journey at the same time as your landscape is starting to transform. And, and on top of that, we both teach courses on these subjects. I haven't got one in the books right now, but I'm actually looking to perhaps do a small earthworks course maybe next season with these clients that I was mentioning that I was doing the design for their infiltration basins with. And you've also got one coming up, haven't you? 
Uh, yeah, first first week of uh, July, we have a practical week. So so we're teaching a PDC, so permaculture design course, um, together with Eduardo in in Portugal. And there, so it's basically a mix of having theory, uh, which is starting now in May um, already. So it's theory first, and then a practical week. Uh, once we get on the land and there the focus will really be on on water so we will see we will design different gray water systems um they put in um a soil system a while back and are thinking of connecting it to a pond uh, so that might be something that we that we get onto really implementing already but at least designing and all that so yeah it will be very practical focused on on what will happen and yeah all the the links uh, to sign up for that are, are also on my my instagram or website Super. Well, since this is the third episode where we're bringing all of this stuff into increasing, you know, the, the options, the potential, how to make these decisions, um, instead of putting the links to our contact, which will be on any of the other previous episode uh, show notes, I'm going to instead put a, a list that Nick and I are going to compile of websites and books and articles and further learning resources that have really helped us in building our own knowledge and experience that you can dive into and that we recommend. Some of them uh, are even people that I've previously interviewed on this show. So I'll also put some links to those interviews if you'd like to go in deeper. So look, <laughs> let's let's put a pause on that for now. We've covered a lot of ground and we will definitely be revisiting this topic in the future. But until then, feel free to reach out to us. We look forward to communicating with you on the channels that we mentioned. It's been a big pleasure. <laughs> and already looking forward to the next one <laughs> whenever that will be maybe tomorrow <laughs> all right take it easy buddy i'll talk to you soon <laughs> Bye bye there you go that wraps up our marathon three-part episode on drought i hope that this information was useful to you and whether or not your area is experiencing drought at the moment just remember that it's never too early to start building mitigation strategies and resilience in the face of drought because in the world we live in this is an inevitability not a what-if scenario. So to help you out, there's a list of about 20 books, websites, and podcasts in the show notes for this episode on the website, which represents some of the most influential resources that Nick and I have used in our own learning journeys in this space, and that we know will be helpful for you too. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future and I'll be right by your side along the way.